today the, is the talk on the Four Noble Truths. And uh, the Four Noble Truths is one of the delineating factors or delineating truths that separates out Buddhism from many of the other religions. And the Four Noble Truths is absolutely the foundation that connects all of the different traditions. So there's different interpretations and different philosophical points of view amongst many of the traditions, but the Four Noble Truths is something which is held in common by all of them. This is kind of ground central. And and because the Four Noble Truths is um, fundamental and basic, it's helpful to get a sense of what it is and how it works, what it what it's about, and how to work with it. So I thought we could spend the class today talking about some of the theoretical framework around it and then use the meditation practice as a way of actually working with it in terms of practice. And then Saturday, of course, the whole retreat is going to be on the theme of the Four Noble Truths, and so we will take it and expand it and explore and do um, more, more of that. So, one of the reasons why the Four Noble Truths is considered noble is because when we look at a a path of practice, we can see that it's a gradual path, a gradual progress. And there are graduated practices that one can do that help support taking steps along the way to develop more understanding and depth. But the reason why this is called noble truths rather than just four truths is because at a certain point in time, what happens is, is, is that we take a radical step, which is not just one more step in front of the other. And in that radical step, there is a demarcation from the way we ordinarily see things into a, 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 a view of looking at things that transforms our relationship with experience itself. And that step and the transformation that takes place with that is a little bit like stepping off of a cliff. And the result of that is, is, is that the relationship with the way we relate to life shifts dramatically. We can't no longer go back and look at things from the same old way. And that delineation then allows the, a category of noble beings or aryas or enlightened ones and the nobility of what they have awakened to is the reason why this is called the Four Noble Truths as opposed to just Four Truths. When we look at the history of the, of the Buddha's teaching, we can see that, the, that the, this discourse, the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta, or the discourse of setting the wheel of motion, was the first discourse that he gave to the five ascetics. And it set the stage for um, defining a large part of what can be uh, uh, summarized as the Buddha's teachings. And so when we look at the simile of the elephant's footprint, when we look at the Majjhima number 28, and they talk about just as the footprints of all legged animals are encompassed in the footprint of the elephant, and the elephant is, is recorded as the foremost among them in size, 
In the same way, all skillful qualities are um, gathered within the Four Noble Truths. So, when we look at this, and we begin to get a sense of, well, what does this mean? So, it's important to begin to get a feeling for the different elements of this, and then to allow these elements to come into our practice. So we have a conceptual framework, and that conceptual framework supports our um, uh, discernment, and the discernment guides our attention and intention in terms of how we relate to what we're experiencing. And so that's why this is so profound, because within the teachings of the Four Noble Truths is considered a complete path. It's not just, you know, some people think Buddhism for babies. <laughs> to understand what the Four Noble Truths is talking about is the entire path of understanding suffering and the realization of the end of suffering and the path that supports the realization towards the end of suffering. So when we look at the first noble truth, what is the first noble truth? The first noble truth is that there is dukkha. And people translate dukkha as stress or unsatisfactoriness or suffering. But in some ways I like to keep it untranslated because I don't think that any of the translations do dukkha justice. You know, dukkha, dukkha is described as the experience of birth, the experience of aging, of sickness, the experience of death. Dukkha is described as physical pain or mental pain. Dukkha is described as the quality of, of longing for something that we don't have. And the, and the grief that happens when we are not with something that we love. Dukkha and the first noble truth is defined as the five aggregates of clinging, which is what we talked about in the last meeting. How when we are identifying with form or feeling or perception or mental formations or consciousness, even when what we are identifying with is pleasant, then the nature of that identification is suffering, is dukkha. And the way this whole mechanism works is something that we touched into a little bit last class, and we will touch into it again this class. So when we talk about the sorrow, or lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, when we talk about you know, the sense of all-pervasive quality of, of a feeling of, of not belonging or a sense of not being good enough or a sense of, of um, guilt, you know, the kinds of mental proliferations that we're normally dealing with, we are touching into dukkha. And certainly it doesn't take very long and much insight to look around and see it everywhere. You know, to see it in the struggle for um, making ends meet, to see it in the, in the struggle to deal with things which are challenging or to deal with different stresses that we're dealing with. You know, being back in the United States it has been um, 
another entrance into dukkha, into the into the way that people are feeling pressurized and um, the lack of support systems and the the way that the confidence in our um, government or our Medicare or our, you know the, the, the cost of health insurance or what it takes to to go see doctors or you know just there's a lot of pressure that people are navigating and the way that pressure is experienced is often experienced in terms of stress or wishing it were otherwise or kind of bracing against things you know or tumbling into things and um, you can see that so the first noble truth is a description of something that we can probably all relate to that our physical body and our mind and hearts has dukkha as something to navigate. And so, but the second noble truth is talking more about, well, what's actually causing all of this? Where is this coming from? And that's where it starts getting really juicy and really interesting because as extensive as the infinite varieties of the way that dukkha can express themselves, it boils down to one cause, and we would think, you know, it's impossible, you know. There's just no way that there's just one cause for suffering. But when we look at it from a inquiry in here, rather than a solution out there, what the inquiry in here is pointing to is the craving that is seeking the coming, the longing for things to be otherwise. Now, these are just words, but when we understand what they're really pointing to, it's like a key that opens up a whole huge window of opportunity. The pain of our bodies, the pain of our hearts, the pain of our minds, the pain of getting old, the pain of getting sick, and the pain of death is not the problem. The problem is wanting it to be different. Problem is wishing and hoping and longing and expecting that it be otherwise. That's the problem. So when we are able to be able to focus our attention on where the cause of suffering is, when we can see that there is a craving for sensual objects, craving for sights and sounds and smells and touch and tastes and mental objects, when we can see that there's a craving to become, to be someone, to have security, to belong, to have power. When we can also see that there's a craving not to be, when we don't want to know, when we don't want to feel, when we don't want to think, when we rather just to get hell out of Dodge, you know, the mind states that loop around the fantasy that somehow suicide is an option, that is the craving for non-being. And because it's rooted in craving, it has got to have suffering as its basis. When suffering is basis, then suffering is result. So, craving expresses itself in a myriad of forms. And there are many, 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 many different objects that we can grasp onto as 
objects of our craving and develop addictions around the objects of our craving. But when we look back at the source, it boils down to the same thing, craving. So when we change the focus from the object to the source, it comes back to the same place as wanting. And as we are able to be focused on the wanting, to keep that in our mind and to bring our attention right there, then that is the space where the cessation of suffering is realized. So the suffering and the cause of suffering gives the conditions for realizing the cessation of suffering when we are able to learn how to relate to it in the right way. And so what we need to remember is, is, is that, you know, the Four Noble Truths is not, you know, um, sour grapes or wet blanket or bad news Buddhism, you know. We don't get stuck in the first truth. We need to remember that the first truth is a gateway, and the gateway takes us to the second and to the And the third truth, which is where the cessation of suffering is realized, is where we are talking about where the liberation that we're longing for is something that we can know as direct experience, not as wishful thinking, but as direct experience. And certainly, we can know that in our daily life. When we have things that are uncomfortable or painful and we wrestle with them, and we expect them to shift, or we hope that they shift, or we try to get them to shift, and then we realize that we don't have any more capacity to change what's happening, and then something shifts in our relationship with wanting, and that shift in our relationship with wanting lets us see that it's a very different thing that's happening. Or sometimes people who are athletes You know, they get on a bike or they go for a run. And there's been all kinds of chaos that's been happening. And they get on a bike and they go for a run. And by shifting their biochemistry, their relationship with all of the problems changes, even though none of the problems have changed. Everything is exactly the same and it feels totally different. The same is true when we're sitting on the meditation cushion and our bodies feel filled with pain and we're struggling and we're tense and we're contracting and we're resisting and we're working and we're struggling and we're hoping and we're bargaining and we're making deals. You know, I will pay attention to you for five seconds as long as you promise you get out of here. And then we recognize what we're doing and we realize this is not meditation. This is not the way to be with what's happening. And we allow our attention to come into the present moment to feel the fullness of our resistance, to embrace it, to breathe with it and through it and allow it to release. And watch what happens. Because the physical pain sometimes does not shift. But the relationship with can shift dramatically. And so the struggle and the fight and the war with what is happening can end even if the thing itself hasn't gone away. 
And so the power of the third noble truth is, is that the relationship with what's happening is where the key to liberation is, not whether the thing is happening or not happening. Well, let me, let me pull out a story. Yeah? When I was in India, I was hiking in the mountains with a companion. This was before I was a nun. This was the year before I became a nun. And I was in front of a cave, and I was looking in front of this cave, and my companion, whose name was Brian, was on top of, the cave, of this rock that the cave was in. And from this cave came a very, very, very loud noise. And from the cave came running at me at full speed a very large bear. And when the bear's face was this far away from my face, I blanked out, I passed out. I went to refuge first. I screamed, and then I jumped and passed out in that sequence. And when I came to, the bear was pressed against my back, and I was pressed against a tree, and my head was in his mouth. So those lovely little marks are not from shaving. They're from teeth. Okay? Now, what happened for me in that moment was the first moments when I came back into awareness was the awareness of fear. Okay? And it was infinite. It had no edges to it. It didn't have any limits to it. It was infinite. But because of nine years of meditation practice and working with these things in the practice, there was fear and the knowing of fear. There was the object of fear and the knowing of it. And then there was a thought about um, relaxing and that there was no point to be afraid because I was going to die. And there was the knowing of that thought. So while the bear was still chewing on my head and pressed against my back, and I was still pressed against the tree limb, I relaxed. Now, I didn't relax. Relaxation just happened. It wasn't volitional. It was the result of not grasping. And so my mind went into a state of rapture, and I felt relaxed and happy and interested and content and joyous and curious how the disillusion of my mind and body was going to unfold because I had no hope that anything other than being killed was what was happening in that moment. The power of this is is, is that my mind relaxed and surrendered without the bear having gone. Okay? That is the power of the practice. It does not have to be magic fairy tale land where it all comes out lovely and beautiful and roses and cherries with whipped cream on top in order to be able to see and to let go. At any moment we can let go, and that possibility is there even when what we are faced with is outside of normal range of fearful and terrifying or difficult. Okay? So that's a very dramatic illustration of the power of the practice. The bear did leave, but the good part of the story was is that by the time the bear left, for me there was no sense in having been invested in any kind of outcome. 
the peacefulness was complete. I didn't have... I wasn't invested in how that one was going to shape out. Okay? So this is why, you know, this is not Buddhism for babies, you know? This is not like, you know, weekend meditation retreat kind of stuff. This is like to the core of what we're dealing with, that at any point in our lives there's the possibility of letting go. And that possibility of letting go has the possibility of opening up a quality of clarity and equanimity and lack of grasping that is free. When I was living in England, there was a path that went from the monastery to the town, which was an hour and a quarter walk away. And part of that path was fascinating because it was, you know, a little path, but it was inside what appeared to be a forest, okay? So it looked like you were walking through a forest, but the forest was like eight feet wide. And on the other edge of the forest was miles and miles and miles and miles of fields that you could see, all right? But in this eight-foot-wide forest, it felt like you were in a forest, okay? Well, dukkha has that quality to it. When we're in it, it feels like it's forever, you know? It feels like it's endless, and it feels like that's who we are and that's what we're dealing with and that's the way it's going to be and it's going to be like that forever. And sometimes the things that we're dealing with are really challenging and they take a while both for them to shift or to come into another relationship with them. And sometimes it's just a question of walking to the edge of the path and you're in a different perspective. You know? of something shifts and we're in a different perspective. So we have the first noble truth is that there's dukkha, and the second is that there's a cause, and that the third is is that when we attend to the cause, we realize the cessation. And the fourth is that there is a path that leads to the cessation of suffering. And this path is comprised of right view, right resolve. Right resolve is often translated as right thought or right intention. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And this eightfold path is broken up into a morality group, which talks about our action, a concentration group, which talks about the way effort, mindfulness, and concentration need to come together in order to be able to see things clearly, in order that there's enough steadiness to be able to focus. And a wisdom group, which is able to disentangle or to understand how our view is essential to condition our thoughts, our core values, our core beliefs, and from that, what we believe to be important or congruent actions is the result of what we think. So in this way, there's a path that has been laid out, 
And this path then supports being able to do what is needed with dukkha. So our duty with dukkha is to comprehend it, to see it, to know it, to understand it, to awaken to it. That is our duty. And our duty with craving is to abandon it, to abandon the cause of craving. And our duty with cessation is to directly experience it. And our duty with the path is to develop and to cultivate it. So when we talk about what is right view, one of the things that is talked about is that understanding the Four Noble Truths is right view. If you don't understand the Four Noble Truths, it's very difficult to have right view. And there are some suttas that talk about, you know, the if, if enlightenment takes place within the context of understanding and realizing dukkha, the cause of dukkha, and the cessation of dukkha, then that is something that gives rise to awakening that can be recognized in the path of the enlightened ones. When we talk about right view, it's split into two different ways of understanding. One is the right view that talks about the causes and the conditions in this world and the kinds of things that are important to know about in this world. And within the understanding of mundane right view, there are um, the principle of understanding cause and effect and the principle of understanding how our generosity has an impact and how it's important to take care of our parents and how our intention and what motivates us gives rise to certain results. So in our mundane understanding of the world, we talk about the causes and the conditions that give rise to living in a skillful and healthy way in this world. And that gives rise to the understanding of why living with integrity is so important. Because when we have integrity, we cause less suffering. And when we don't have integrity, we cause a lot more suffering. But even if we are living with integrity, and even if we are living with generosity, and even if we take care of our parents and take care of our families and do right and do well and do good acts, that in and of itself is not liberating. And so super mundane right view is the understanding of what needs to change in order that we can stop this looping from identifying everything in terms of me and my and my pain and my problem and my suffering into a way of relating with it so that the heart can open in accordance with truth and so that what we can experience is freedom from suffering in its fullest expression. So, good is good. There is absolutely nothing wrong with being good. But being good is not the same as being free. And the Four Noble Truths is a complete path 
that describes and articulates both a path of goodness and a path of freedom. And it's up to each of us to be able to pick it up and understand it and flesh it out so that we're able to use it in a way that supports both. I want to finish with excerpts from the Satipatthana Sutta, which is this is the continuation of, and then reading more from the Ballad of the Liberation from the Khandas, which I started last week. So, in the Satipatthana Sutta, when one is looking at the groups for reference, the first one is the mental qualities in reference to the five hindrances. And the second one is mental qualities in and of themselves with references to the five clinging aggregates. And the third one is mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the six internal and external sense media. Eyes, ears, nose, smell, body, taste, thought. And the fourth one is in reference to the seven factors of awakening. And the fifth one, furthermore, the monk remains focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the Four Noble Truths. And how does he remain focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the Four Noble Truths? There is the case where he discerns, as it has come to be, that this is stress. He discerns, as it has come to be, that this is the origination of stress. He discerns, as it has come to be, that this is the cessation of stress. And he has discerned, as it has come to be, that this is the way leading to the cessation of stress. In this way, he remains focused internally on mental qualities in and of themselves, or externally on mental qualities in and of themselves, or both internally and externally of mental qualities in and of themselves. Or he remains focused on the phenomena of origination with regard to mental qualities on the phenomena of passing away with regard to mental qualities, or the phenomena of origination and passing away with regard to mental qualities, or his mindfulness that there are mental qualities is maintained to the extent in knowledge and remembrance, and he remains independent, unsustained by not clinging to anything in the world. And this is how a monk remains focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the Four Noble Truths. Now, if anyone would develop these four frames of reference in this way for seven years, one of two fruits can be expected of him. Gnosis right here and now, or if there be any remnant of clinging sustenance non-return. Let alone seven years. If anyone would develop these four frames of reference in this way for six years, or five, or four, or three, or two, or one, or seven months, or six months, or five, or three, or two, or one month, half a month, one or two fruits can be expected, either gnosis right here and now, or if there's any remnant of cleaning sustenance non-return, let alone half a month. If anyone were to develop these four frames of reference in this way for seven days, one of two fruits can be expected of him, either gnosis right here and now, or if there's any remnant of clinging sustenance non-return. This is a direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, 
for the attainment of right method and for the realization of unbinding. In other words, the four frames of reference. This is what was said, and in reference to this, it was said. And the monks were delighted in the Blessed One's words. Now let me just close with a few more from this liberation from the Khandas, the, the um, poem that Ajahn Man wrote about the aggregates. I'm paraphrasing and skipping, so it's not a continuation. It's just bits and pieces. Know that evil comes from resisting the truth. Evil comes from not knowing. If we can close the door on stupidity, there's ultimate ease. All evil grows silent, perfectly still. All khandas are suffering with no pleasure at all. Before I was stupid and in the dark, as if I were in a cave. In my desire to see the Dhamma, I tried to grab hold of the heart to still it. I grabbed hold of mental labels, thinking they were the heart, until it became a habit. Doing this, I was long enthralled with watching them. Wrong mental labels obscured the mind, and I was deluded into playing around with combats. Poor me. Exalting myself endlessly, I went around passing judgment on others, but accomplished nothing. Looking at the faults of others embitters the heart, as if we were to set ourselves on fire. Becoming sooty and burned, whoever's right or wrong, good or bad, that's their business. Ours is to make sure the heart looks after itself. <coughs> Inconstancy refers to the heart as it moves from its labels. When you see this, watch it again and again, right at the moving. When all external objects have faded away, the Dhamma will appear. When you see the Dhamma, you recover from mental unrest. The mind then won't be attached to dualities. Just this much truth can end the game. Knowing, not knowing, that's the method for the heart. Once we see through inconstancy, the mind stores, stops creating issues. All that remains is the primal mind, true and unchanging. Knowing the mind source brings release from all worry and error. If you go out to the mind ends, you're immediately wrong. The nature of sankaras, when they appear, is to vanish. They all decay. None remain. The awareness that comes on its own is not the thought song. Knowing the mind source and mind moments, the source mind is released from sorrow. The mind source, certain automatic knowledge of sankaras, the affairs of change, is not a matter of parading out to see or to know a thing. It's also not a knowledge based on labeling in pairs. The mind knows itself from the motion of the song. The mind's knowledge of the motion is simply adjacent mind moments. In fact, they cannot be divided. They're all one and the same. When the mind is two, that's called sanya, or perception, entangling things. Inconstancy is itself, so why focus on anyone else? When the heart sees its own decays, it's released from darkness. It loses its taste for them and abandons its doubts. It starts stops searching for things within and without. 
Its attachments all fall away. It leaves its loves and hates. Whatever weighs it down, it can end its desires. Its sorrows all vanish, together with the mighty cares that made it moan. As if a shower of rain were to refresh the heart, the cool heart is realized by the heart itself. The heart is cool, for it has no need to wander around, looking at people, knowing the mind source in the present. It is unshakable and unconcerned with any good or evil, for they must pass away with all other impediments. Perfectly still, the mind source neither thinks nor interprets. It stays only with its own affairs. No expectations, no need to be entangled or troubled, no need to keep up its guard. Sitting or lying down, one thinks at the mind source. Release. This is called the attainment of liberation from the khandas, a dharma that remains in place with no coming or going, a genuine nature, the only one with nothing to make it stray or spin. With that, the tale is ended, right or wrong. Please ponder with discernment until you know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.